Chapter 12 Overall Summary Chapters 1-11 through 11. It will be convenient to pause at this point and summarize our discussion in the past studies in order that we gain a concise overview of our pattern of thought. The first part of this series set forth the Lordship of Christ in the realm of knowledge and applied that truth to the exercise of man's reason. We concluded with Calvin that God's word must be presupposed in order to have knowledge in either the realm of creation or redemption. However, because our culture has been saturated with the contrary demands of autonomy and neutrality, there is a pressing need for reformation in the world of thought. Three basic objections to presuppositionalism in the theory of knowledge arise from an unreformed culture. These three complaints were subsequently considered in order to demonstrate their invalidity, to exhibit the strength of presuppositionalism and expound further aspects of that position. Christ's Epistemic Lordship Number 1. God's knowledge is original, comprehensive, and creative. There are no higher principles or standards of truth to which he looks and attempts to bring his thoughts into conformity. There is no mystery surrounding his understanding, for it is infinite. God's mind gives both diversity and order to all things, thus guaranteeing the reality of particulars, multiplicity, and yet assuring that they are intelligible, unity. Number 2. All knowledge and wisdom have been deposited in Christ, the source standard, and embodiment of truth. Number three, God's word thus has supreme, absolute, and unquestionable authority in the realm of knowledge as well as morality. Number four, this also means that God's word must be the final standard of truth for man, in which case it cannot be challenged by some more ultimate criterion. Number five, consequently, the teaching of Christ in scripture has self-attesting authority. Christ clearly speaks with the authority of God, is the repository of knowledge, and is subject to no authority or standard more basic than himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He alone is adequate to witness to himself and his word. Man's Exercise of Reason Number 1. There is absolute truth, the knowledge of which is accessible to man. While he may not know exhaustively, he does have adequate knowledge. Number two, man's knowledge must be a receptive reconstruction of God's original and creative knowledge. To come to a knowledge of the truth, man must think God's thoughts after him. A. The starting point of knowledge is therefore God. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, thus requiring respect and submission. B. In particular, one must submit to the truth of God's revealed word. C. Man must be grateful to God for whatever he possesses, including his knowledge and understanding. All that we have comes from God. D. Thus, belief precedes understanding, and revelation undergirds reason. Theology is foundational to every area of study. E. So also, man does not have the prerogative to call God's word into question. Number 3. Philosophy, which suppresses rather than presupposing the truth of God, evidences the darkness of a sinful mind. That is, it is in both epistemological and moral rebellion against God. a. Such thinking is made foolish by God and leads to futile conclusions. It makes the use of reason impossible. b. 
thinking which submits to the elementary principles, the presuppositions, of worldly philosophy and the traditions of men, deludes men with crafty speech. It misleads them into spiritual destruction. Number 4. Neutrality in scholarship, apologetics, or schooling is both impossible and immoral. A. No man can serve two masters, and thus one must choose to ground his intellectual efforts in Christ, or is in his own autonomous reason. There is no middle ground between these two authorities. b. Neutrality would erase the distinctiveness of the Christian's position and muffle the antithesis between godly and ungodly thinking. c. A Christian who strives to be neutral not only denies the lordship of Christ in knowledge and loses his solid ground in reasoning, he also unwittingly endorses assumptions which are hostile to his faith. Number 5. The believer is a new man in Christ, being renewed in the mind. A. Conversion requires repentance, change of mind, from attempted autonomy. B. The Christian walks by faith, in the regenerating and illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, rather by self-sufficient intellect. C. His every thought is made captive to, and rooted in, Christ as his new Lord. Hence, he presupposes the truth of God's word and applies it to every aspect of life, including intellectual activity. D. The believer must love the Lord his God with all his mind, seeking in all things to glorify him, even in the world of thought. Further Crucial Aspects of Presuppositionalism Number 1. Men come to presuppose the truth of God only by the grace of God. a. Because it is the truth and grace of God which has transformed us, we must be bold in our challenge to intellectual belief. b. Since it is the grace of God, not our own wisdom, which accounts for our change of mind, humility is befitting the Christian scholar. We have nothing in ourselves of which to boast. c. Therefore, it must be humble boldness, not compromise, not obscurantism, not arrogance, which characterizes our scholarship. Number 2. All men are without excuse for rebellion against the Lord. For all men know the living and true God by means of his common revelation. A. Despite his contrary profession, even the unbeliever knows what may be known about God from nature and conscience. God has clearly revealed himself to every man. B. All men attempt to suppress this knowledge of God, as is manifest in the various, multiform, and profuse schemes of anti-Christian thought and philosophy. C. But because the unbeliever cannot rid himself of a knowledge of God, because he continues to use the borrowed capital of theistic truths, he is enabled to come to a limited understanding of the truth about the world and himself, despite, not because of, his attempted autonomy. Number 3. God has created all things for himself, directs them to his own sovereign ends, and owns everything, in which case everything in the created realm must serve him. a. This precludes the possibility of any neutral ground between the believer and unbeliever, but assures us that there is abundant common ground, metaphysically speaking, between them, since all men are God's creatures and live in God's world. b. As God's creature, created in God's image, and living in an environment which constantly brings the revelation of God to bear upon him, the unbeliever is always accessible to the gospel. The believer always has a point of contact 
with the unbeliever. Number one, his being the image of God, and number two, the suppressed truth deep inside him.